Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Views on View. I am your host, Lindsay Wardell. With me today is special guest, John Lim. Welcome, John. Hi, it's good to be on the show. Yeah, it's good to have you here. Would you mind introducing yourself for our audience? Yeah, sure. I'm a developer based in Malaysia. Been doing Vue for a couple of years now. I contribute to viewmastery.com as well, uh, some articles. I work in the construction industry, funny enough. So construction is, is one where usually it's quite backward and quite traditional, but we've found some uses for Vue and it's really worked out really well since as well. So I'm based in sunny Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. I lead a team here, you know, building quite cool things on uh, tunneling, construction, building apps using Vue. Hey folks, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. And lately I've been working on actually building out Top End Devs. If you're interested, you can go to topendevs.com slash podcast and you can actually hear a little bit more about my story, about why I'm doing what I'm doing with Top End Devs, why I changed it from uh, devchat.tv to Top End Devs. But what I really want to get into is that I have decided that I'm going to build the platform that I always wished I had with devchat.tv and I renamed it to Top End Devs because I want to give you the resources that are gonna help you to build the career that you want, right? So whether you wanna be an influencer in tech, whether you want to go and just max out your salary and then go live a lifestyle with your family, your friends, or just traveling the world or whatever, I, I wanna give you the resources that are gonna help you do that. We're gonna have career and leadership resources in there, and we're gonna be giving you content on a regular basis to help you level up and max out your career. So go check it out at topendevs.com. If you sign up before my birthday, that's December 14th. If you sign up before my birthday, you can get 50% off the lifetime of your subscription. Once again, that's topendevs.com. That's really interesting. I I mean, most of the time when we think about view applications, we're thinking normal, like it's a form, enter some data. Is is that the kind of thing you're doing? Or is it is it for like put building the uh, the plans for construction work that's getting done? Yeah, so we use it for like tunnel boring machines. So like think Elon Musk and the boring company. We built tunnels here in Malaysia and we sort of found users for it because with tunneling, there's a lot of sensor data. There's a lot of IoT data that we aggregate from a lot of different sources. And we use Vue because we want to build apps to uh, sort of visualize the data that we have, be able to churn out insight, create graphs, charts, capture information coming from site, things like that. So yeah, we We've, we've been using Vue for quite a while to that effect. That's awesome. Is it you mentioned IoT? Are you deploying these like built-in interfaces for for IoT type devices rather than deploying something to the web? No, so it's mostly deploying to the web. What we do is that basically we collect information from all these different sensors and tunnel boring machines, and uh, we use Vue to build the web portal to be able to view the information. Right now, we're also experimenting of like using Vue for our local HMI interfaces on our tunnel boring machines. So it used to be that human machine interfaces tend to be a bit clunky. They tend to be a bit ugly in a way because you know you you go with the standard Siemens kind of uh, HMIs but we are experimenting also using like locally using Vue to create like a desktop app where you can actually like click around in a very beautiful interface and be able to interact with sensors on the machine and things like that as well. That's awesome. I'm I'm always really excited when I learn about a new use case for Vue and, and how it's used in a particular industry so this is really exciting to hear about. Yeah, I really love you. I think it's really, really made our development process very enjoyable. Nice. And John, for you personally, what brought you into using Vue in your career? Yeah, so traditionally, I, I studied mechanical engineering. My first programming language started off with MATLAB. 
funnily enough. I graduated to Python later on, sort of dabbled in a bit of web programming at one point where I was trying out a bit of, uh, you know, building APIs and things like that. And I was thinking to myself, well, I, I would really like to be able to build a web interface in a very easy, quick manner to be able to visualize the work that I'm doing. Um, so I sort of explored different web frameworks around. So the usual, you know, React, Vue. And one thing that really stuck out to me was how easy it was to pick up Vue. I didn't really have much of a context or background. I wasn't a React developer previously. You know, I just started off from zero. And um, I sort of taught myself uh, the framework. I tried React, but Vue was so much more intuitive. The syntax, the, uh, the way things are structured, it was just so understandable from day one. And I thought to myself, because all my, my team was also uh, young guys who, who were new, junior. I thought to myself that now that my team is growing and now that you know we're all sort of new to this as well, Having Vue is like the best option because like the learning curve is not as steep and the ecosystem is great as well. You have a real great community of people who are all working together to build very cool plugins for the framework. So it was really a no-brainer choice kind of because yeah, once we dabbled in it, we started building stuff and deploying it to the web. We thought to ourselves, well, if it's really that easy to use, we can essentially build anything we want. So that's where we really got started with Vue. That's awesome. Yeah, I started with Vue in a similar way. I'd already been doing HTML and CSS, but I needed something to make the the UI a little more reactive. And being able to just dive into Vue where I was able to use HTML and CSS like I already knew, and then layer on the the power of the framework really felt yeah. comfortable as, as far as a learning curve. So I, that makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah, exactly. And and there's no need to explore any kind of very deep concepts from the start, like, you know, JSX and things like that. It's really like you say, just bare bones. If you know HTML, you know CSS, if you're willing to learn, the documentation is all there, very clearly written, and, and it's very easy to pick up. Nice. And before we get to our main topic, you mentioned that you write articles for Vue Mastery. What got you started writing on, on Vue Mastery of, as you do? Yeah, so... I stumbled on Vue Mastery because I was looking for tutorials for certain things, you know, as developers do, right? If you don't know the uh, answer to something or you don't know how to solve something, you just Google it. And uh, Vue Mastery had a selection of very good articles. Uh, and for me, I, I just thought to myself, well, there's some things because I've been developing for quite a while on Vue already. I just thought, well, there's quite a lot of us. I, I think there's quite a lot of topics still uncovered for, for Vue Mastery. And I thought, well... Since I know some of these things, I might as well just write about them because like in the same way that I've benefited from, you know, the community sharing their knowledge about how to do things, I should also just share my knowledge in any way I know how. So I just wrote to Vue Mastery. I said, oh, are you looking for writers? Because I would really like to like contribute and like, you know, do my part in the community as well. Wow, that's awesome. I like whenever I'm hearing about starting a blog or, or doing blogging, I'm thinking dev.2, hashnode, medium. I run my own personal site. I hadn't realized that it was just that straightforward to get started working on writing for somewhere like Vue Mastery or one of those those big name sites for the framework. That's really neat. Yeah, and and I've had experiences writing for for other sites as well in the past, uh, not for Vue, but for like Python type topics. So I'm sort of quite regular to like article writing on the web. And so like to me, this was sort of like a no-brainer as well. I thought to myself, well, this is a very established site. They're really good articles. I thought it'd be great for myself as well because I would learn how to gain experience, learn how to write good technical articles and uh, never look back ever since. I really enjoyed working with the team there in Vue Mastery. That's really cool. What 
I know you mentioned giving back to the community, but what is it about writing that interests you as a way to give back to the community, as a way to do that education of what you've already learned to help build others? Yeah, so I think because technology moves so fast, things develop really quickly. You know, we're talk- we are already in view three right now. You know, we used to be in view two and now we're in view three. I think the thing about writing that really gives me a kick is the fact that, you know, I'm really able to share knowledge as and when I learn it and as and when I gain something new. And it's really exciting to be able to share how-tos, right, with other people. Because, you know, the the feeling of like being stuck on a problem or not knowing how to do a certain thing is very frustrating. And there's always gaps in in knowledge because, you know, you try to search something and you can't find it. I think being able to to write and being able to just quickly put things on on the web for other people to also just follow or emulate or learn from, to me, I think it's just really satisfying. I, I know it helps myself personally because as I write things, I too sort of gain experience or I too have to sort of do a bit more research sometimes, delve a bit deeper into the details. So I too benefit, you know, um, as a developer. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I feel like the process of writing is so, you very much have to get into what's going on. You have to understand it so that you can explain it clearly. I remember I was writing an article on just using the Vue 3.1, the the migration tool to get from Vue 2 to Vue 3. And I, it was really interesting to get into it and start having to explain it so I had to understand more myself. That makes a lot of sense from my perspective. Is that what specifically drew you to writing these articles that we're about to talk about on doing progressive web apps using Vue 3? Um, yeah. Learning more about the tool? Yeah, I think so. So like I've done a bit of coding, like for example, for that article for PWAs, I've, I've built some apps before using the PWA modules that were available and things like that. And uh, to me, I just thought like when going through the process, I realized that it's not something too straightforward sometimes, especially using plugins and other modules. Sometimes documentation might be unclear in certain instances. So to me, I think having gone through the process, having sort of done it once before or twice before or whatever, making it clearer to someone else is something that, you know, makes me quite satisfied because, you know, I'm helping others learn and, and accelerate their learning curve as well. I think I think on top of that is, yeah, it's, it's really just, like you say, uh, diving into the the details of things and being able to uh, learn a bit more myself and working with Adam is great on View Mastery because Adam sort of proofreads my work and it's not easy sometimes to like uh, convey an idea in a very simple way. You sort of have to adopt the kind of teacher mindset where you, you know, sort of write things in a way that people can easily follow. So I think the process of writing, you know, with Adam and things like that has made me a better writer as well. He improved reading my work and things like that. I, I've totally learned a lot from yeah, writing articles on View Mastery. And there's definitely something to be said for someone who will look over your work and give you those tips and suggestions. I think that's the, uh, the one of the best things you can find if you're writing. It's just that extra set of eyes that will point out things you're not able to catch yourself. Yeah, exactly. Because then he'll say like, oh, you know, well, this is not really understandable. This is not clear. Can we make it a bit clearer? And things like that. I go like, ah, oh, yes, you're right. That's awesome. So I'd like to dive into these specific articles that you wrote about PWAs. Before we dive too close into how to make a PWA work with you, Would you mind explaining what specifically a PWA is for those who might not be familiar with it yet? Yeah, so a PWA is a very interesting concept because a PWA is essentially your 
regular web app, right? But the only difference is that you're including things like a manifest file, right? A manifest.json file. And what that enables you to do is that basically on Android or on iOS, you're able to then, when you access that that browser site, you know, your www.yourdomain.com or whatever, when you access that, you start seeing notifications pop up at the bottom where it says, oh, do you want to install the app, Right. So that's very interesting because you have now been able to turn your web app into something that behaves like a native app without going through the Play Store or the iOS App Store or anything like that. So, And you do that within the environment that you know, right? The browser environment. And what's cool is that when you install it onto your local machi- uh, local device, it behaves like a normal native app, right? You You don't see the browser. Although it's still in a browser environment, you don't see the browser headers and things like that. You have a splash screen. It looks and feels like like a native app, right? And it has access to most of the APIs and things like that. And the fact that, you know, you don't have to, you know, just by just by knowing web technologies, you're able to do something like that. I think it's pretty cool. You don't have to learn how to code a native app. Yeah, I think one of the other benefits is, uh, like you were saying, you can just install straight from the browser. You don't need to worry about deploying on Windows versus Mac versus Linux. You don't need to worry about bundling executables. It's all done for you by the browser, in effect. You, you provide it the, the manifest, and the browser takes care of everything else for you. That, exactly. that feels so powerful. Exactly. It's so powerful. Yeah. So let's say I am building a view application, as one does on this podcast, and we, we've decided we need to add some functionality that makes it more like a progressive web app. What are some of the steps that I would do to start heading in that direction? How would I add progressive web app features to my view application? Yeah, so I think I think the easiest way to get started is just to use the um, the official view PWA plugins, which I've listed on the uh, view mastery article. Reason why you can resort to using that is simply because it's all pre-built. You would literally just say, okay, view add PWA, which is the way you install packages, right? Uh, to view. Uh, or if you're using Nux as well, uh, there's a Nux PWA package. I like to use Nux quite a lot, actually, to be honest, because I like how easy and how set up everything is already from the start. So these pre-built packages actually do most of the heavy lifting for you. Simply by installing them and going through documentation, you'll see like, oh, you know, there are a lot of settings that you can actually set in your uh, config file. What it does is basically it, it starts to meet the requirements for a PWA, which is you have your manifest.json file, you install a service worker, and essentially you're good to go. You, you've turned your, your web app that you've coded up in view, you've turned it already into a PWA just by simply installing these plugins. So wait, just making sure I don't need to do any extra configuration once it's once it's there. I'm already a PWA if that's all I wanted to do. Is that right? Yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it's quite straightforward in that sense. I think if you go to the documentation, um, it also shows you certain things that you just need to specify like your app name and things like that, you know, some icons and whatever. But by default, just by installing the uh, plugin itself, it already gets you to a point where you're all, you're pretty much ready to be a PWA. That's awesome. So you mentioned having different kinds of icons. What are some of the, the next steps that I could take if I wanted to make the PWA experience a little bit better than just plugging in this thing and letting my site stay as is? What, what are some of the next steps you would recommend? 
Yeah, so like uh, if you if you do a b- bit more research about PWAs, it's really a whole hive of uh, different things that you can explore. Now, like I say, it's a it's a browser based app that behaves like a native app on your phone, right? So there's quite a bit of things you can sort of configure. For example, the service worker, right? Um, so what is the service worker? Well, the reason why you install it on your phone and it behaves like a native app is because it also has an offline experience, right? So meaning that like uh, if you lose your Wi-Fi connection or your 5G, 4G connection, the app is still able to function, right? And the, the reason why this works is because of the service worker, which acts as a proxy, right? And with the service worker, some extra topics that you can sort of go into is things like uh, network caching strategies, for example, right? Uh, how do you want to cache content, right? Do you, do you cache all the content? Do you cache certain amounts of content? When does the service worker kick in? Things like that. That is some of the uh, additional areas to explore to make your PW experience much better because, you know, there's some offline experience very important. If you're in the browser, just in the browser, if you lose your internet, that's it. But now that you're an app on the phone, you need to be able to cater to people who lose their internet connection as well. What else? You could look at the manifest.json file, which gives you a lot of configuration options as to some of the loading, some of the uh, how it displays on your phone, the app icons, the app names, things like that. Yeah, those are other configuration options that you can also explore. What else? I think those are the big ones actually at the moment that come to mind. Uh, probably also local storage because, you know, you might want to store things locally on the phone in a local database so that you can sort of retrieve them, like I say, offline or things like that. So index DB will be something that is also quite uh, relevant to this conversation because like you might want to store things for your offline consumption, etc. Yeah. Yeah, it gets really complex once you start thinking about offline. Hi, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. And lately, I've been coaching some people on starting some podcasts and in some cases, just taking their career to the next level. You know, whether you're beginner going to intermediate, intermediate going to advanced, whether you're trying to get noticed in the community or go freelance, I've been helping these folks figure out how to get in front of people, how to build relationships and how to build their careers and max out and and just go to the next level. So if you're interested in talking to me and having me help you go to the next level, go to topendevs.com slash coaching. I will give you a one hour free session where we can figure out what you're trying to do, where you're trying to go and figure out what the next steps are. And then from there, we can figure out how to get you to the place you want to go. So once again, that's topendevs.com slash coaching. I have one app where I've installed, uh, this is a Vite application, so I'm using the Vite PWA plugin. But it's the same idea. I have a number of assets, a number of images that I needed to cache. And then there's the, the JavaScript itself that ideally is cached so that the application itself actually runs. But it's also something that's being constantly changed. Like the images are static. They're never going to change again. But the the code that makes up my application, that bundle is always going to be changing. Yeah. And that can be a little more complicated when you're using a service worker that's that's caching all of those assets. So I think there's a few different strategies for for how to break that cache. Would you mind going into a little bit of detail about that? Yeah, so I think probably off the top of my head, um, honestly, I haven't played much with the service worker. I usually use it as is uh, with the vanilla options. But I know that there's yeah a lot of documentation online, especially on the uh, Google yeah, web, uh, I can't remember what it was. Yeah, the, the Google developers website uh, has a lot of information on like the different uh, caching strategies available. Yeah, I remember I just kept 
running into issues where locally I was able to break the cache pretty easily. And then on iOS, I couldn't. It wouldn't break the cache no matter what I did. So I had to change my caching strategy. And right. It's just one of those complicated things that I'm, I'm still learning about too. Correct. Yeah, I think there's really a lot to learn in this space. I wouldn't call myself like an expert expert in this, to be honest. Uh, it's something that there's just so much to learn. And yeah, I'm still still learning a lot each day, to be honest. Yeah. So talking about iOS, on some platforms, you run into different issues with how much support there is for a PWA. I think I'm just guessing here, but I think the best support is either on Android or on Windows, uh, ironically. Yep. Yep. Because Microsoft is very into PWAs. I think you can even install them from the Windows Store. What are what are some of the restrictions that you've noticed while working with PWAs? Yeah, so the sad thing about PWAs and the reason why it's probably not more well adopted is because, you know, the support on iOS is quite lacking. Why I say that is, of course, yes, you can still install from the browser. You can still see your app icon and things like that. But you start noticing the uh, limitations quite quickly. I think one of it is uh, in the area of push notifications. The fact that you, on Android, it's quite straightforward. You know, you can actually send push notifications through things like, for example, Firebase cloud messaging, right? If you're using the Firebase platform, you can easily integrate it in. And what happens is that you can send a message uh, and it hits all your users' phones and it will come like a Chrome notification. But on iOS, it totally blocks any PWAs from uh, accessing that API. So push notifications, a bit of a problem. Everything else really behaves quite uh, quite normally, in a sense, whatever you can do in your browser, you can do on the phone. I don't think you have access to all the all the local sensors or APIs available. But uh, I think the PWA honestly is is quite a deal breaker because a lot of times, like if you're developing an app that you know you're trying to get engagement from the ground and you're trying to prod your users to interact with your app in a certain way, and you can't do that. To me, that's really a deal breaker. I think another one is that I've read online a lot of times that like the cache tends to get cleared after two weeks of inactivity or the app gets deleted after like two weeks or a month of inactivity. You know, sometimes automatically on the phone, iOS does certain amounts of cleanup. So either the app disappears or like, you know, the cache uh, gets wiped or things like that. So yeah, there's quite a lot of downsides when it comes to like working with PWAs on iOS. Would you, if you were working at a company that needed to deploy a new app today and your audience was both on Android and iOS, would you consider that a deal breaker for going down the PWA route? Or would you I think consider it at least for the Android users? Yeah, I think I think that's a good question. I think in the article that I wrote, I specified that it's really about the use case. You really got to ask yourself, like, does it really matter to you? You know, for example, with push notifications, does it really matter to you that your users get notified? Because you know, a lot of times you might be just developing something really simple. Like, for example, in construction, the apps that I've developed in the past, for example, one of them was like an asset management app. So we're trying to track movement of uh, assets around construction sites and like uh, different stores. So in those cases, I don't really need user interaction. Like I don't really need to like send push notifications because I can do that via email. So to me, that's not a deal breaker, right? My use case was quite clear. But I mean, if you're thinking of sort of a very consumer-centric app, I don't know, say if you're trying to build an Uber, for example, uh, your own version of Uber, where you need to sort of notify your client about the arrival of your taxi, for example, that would be a deal breaker in that sense. So I think it really depends on your use case and uh, what you're trying to do. For For most intensive purposes, I think PWAs are suitable. I just think when it comes to like more intensive apps or apps that require engagement, you would start 
seeing the limitations being deal breakers. That makes a lot of sense. I know I've heard of some big name applications like Twitter is the one that comes to mind where their web app is actually a PWA and you can install it on Android and Windows and on the desktop if you want to. I don't know of any really other big ones. It's more people trying it out. Like I, I very often see pe- developers blogs being PWAs that you can install, yeah. which is always interesting to me because it's mostly static content. But uh, it's, <laughs> it's definitely, I, I feel like it's a feature that has a lot of possibility. And I feel like as developers, we should be putting more pressure on Apple maybe just to, to get the support. I, I know they, uh, they're a big fan of their app store, but having the ability to install straight from the browser just feels like such an important thing for us in, in our industry. Totally agree. I think the PWE concept is actually a very powerful concept. And I think it's one that might scare Apple sometimes because it's really just undercutting the uh, app store, you know, because that's where they make a bulk of profit. And like the fact that you can just install it from a browser and that it cuts across platforms is is quite is quite a winner, you know. To be honest, it's it's even better than say going for things like React Native, for example, because you develop for yes, uh, you know the the web as well as your Android and iOS. But you know the fact that you still have to bundle it and things like that for a specific platform, you know, it's and you have to go through the App Store, the Play Store, compared to a PWA, a PWA is so hassle free. You know, you just deploy it. As long as you've got your setup right, your service worker, your manifest.json file, and Chrome identifies it properly, you, the fact that you can just install it immediately is really like, nowadays people say that customers have app fatigue, right? Because you've got so many apps on your phone, you can't really find what you're looking for, right? But the fact that this is so low friction, like you go to a website and immediately ask you, oh, do you just want to install this on your phone, right? You don't have to go through some Play Store, App Store, the fact that you can just do it right there, I think to me is, is quite a winner because... Why would customers not want to install your app, right? Why would they go through the hassle of going through the stores, right? So hopefully in the future, Apple sees the benefits of PWAs and doesn't really hamper it with like their restrictions, but instead sort of promotes it and like, yeah, allows it to to thrive on their platform. I I think that would be great for developers all over. It's really going to change the way apps are developed moving forward. Oh, absolutely. While we're talking about deploying these applications for people to use them, in your second article, we talk a little bit about using uh, Firebase for deployment. Is there anything specific with deploying a PWA that you would pay attention to? Or are there any features of different deployment options? Like, I typically deploy to Netlify. Am I missing out by deploying to Netlify instead of Firebase as far as PWA features or integrations? Um yeah, so that's a good question. I've used Netlify before and I've used Firebase. Uh, so when I was starting off, I was just like comparing the two because I was looking at my deployment options. I really like Firebase because Firebase gives you a full suite of tools that you can use at your disposal. I think it. I think Firebase really makes it really easy to deploy a PWA because one of the requirements of a PWA is the fact that you need to have a HTTPS connection. Right. And Firebase hosting does that out of the box, right? I'm sure Netlify does it as well out of the box. I think these two platforms are like top grade. If you wanted to deploy something, you would not lose out going to either of them. I just personally like Firebase a lot more because like I said, um, it gives you access to the other suite of things. Like for example, the analytics side of things or the cloud messaging side of things. So like, even the push notifications I was talking about on Firebase is actually really easy to get started with like doing push notifications because things like Firebase cloud messaging is just available to you and the SDK is quite easily to use. And if you think about like access to things like other things like databases, for example, you, you can use Firestore 
which is what a lot of developers like to use. The fact that it's serverless, the fact that you know you don't have to host anything, you it's it's no SQL, and the fact that it comes as part of the ecosystem, I think is is brilliant. I think Firebase now has also included a lot more tools with like AI, machine learning that you can easily just integrate into your app. So to be honest, I think Netlify, Firebase, they're both great choices. I just like Firebase a lot more because I think it makes the SDKs are really good. Yeah, one thing I really like about Firebase and probably I should use it more as I'm exploring these options, is the fact that it is geared towards building these real-time applications. Like that, That is its purpose in life. So exactly. even if you're not building a PWA, if you're wanting to integrate with some other type of platform, you can do that really easily with Firebase. Um, yep. I, I'm a huge fan of, I think it's their, their Firestore, I think is what it's called. The, yeah, the, the database. database. I remember playing with that. I was just, basically it was a to-do app, but I was I was putting data in I happened to have it up in two screens at once as I was first trying it out. Yeah. Wait, it's already, but I just, how? I didn't refresh (laughs) and it's all there Uh, because it's just built in. It's part of what Firebase offers. Exactly. I I think it's such a cool platform for building applications. Yeah. I I will give a shout out to like all the, the beginners out there who like don't know where to get started, where to deploy and what platform to use. I would just say by default, go for Firebase. Because uh, like you say, the tools come pre-built. Like say if you're doing a real-time app, I remember like what you say, doing a to-do list, right? The most basic apps that like, you know, a lot of people get started with. You start seeing the power of the SDK because like, uh, I remember you could just like start coding like, okay, if I wanted to collaborate with someone else, like if say I have multiple users, we all want to sort of collaborate on a to-do list. The SDK even has like a listener set up. So you can say like, oh, I want this list to be like a live observable list, Right. So if I make changes to it right now, other people will immediately receive those changes and they will see everything happening in real time. And that doesn't even add any cost, no extra cost to what you're trying to do. It, it comes as part of you know the tools that Google offers uh, in the ecosystem. So to me, I think that's just phenomenal, right? And like I said, I went from like, having zero knowledge to now developing for a couple of years. I have never looked back with Firebase because I've always really loved working on the platform. Yeah. I thinking about that real time database still. One one of the the more interesting use cases I found for it is I was making a turn based strategy game and I wanted to be able to play it over the internet. It's like, well, how do I do I need to do WebRTC? Like, do I need to get super complex? No, wait, I can just hook into Firebase. I'll just pass the state up, and then I exactly. just stored the state in in the real time data store, and it would pass down to all the all the players. So everyone was always in sync with what the the state of the game was. It was so cool. Yeah, exactly. And I think that is one of their big use cases. If you go to the Firebase Firestore documentation, you start seeing a lot of the use cases also being gaming because you know you need that kind of collaborative data transfers and things like that. So yeah, really good platform. Yeah, have you? I've heard really good things about an alternative called Supabase. Have you ever tried that? Have you used it before? I don't recall uh, hearing it, and I've never tried it before, so I don't think I know much about it, to be honest. Okay. I think we did like an open source version of Firebase. Like They try to emulate Firebase, but uh, you can use it on any cloud provider. Is that the idea? That, I think that's the idea. I'm looking at their site right now. And their their tagline is the open source Firebase alternative. Um, right. and it looks like they're using like Postgres for their database instead of the uh, the Firebase data store. Oh, cool. So it might be worth checking out. I don't know if they offer everything that Firebase does, especially for our topic of PWAs. I just, I'd heard of it and was wondering if you'd had any experience. I, I think I've seen it once. So I, I remember, yeah, it was the open, open source copy of uh, Firebase. Yeah. 
But I believe they're still quite new, actually. I don't know how mature it is. So if any of our listeners have used Superbase before, I'd love to hear from you just to know how it is to use. Since I've used Firebase before, it looks like an interesting option. So John, before we get to our end, if we have successfully made our, our PWA, we've added the features we want, we've got our icons set for different platforms, we've got our, our cache breaking strategy, we've got our caching strategy, we've deployed, let's say we're on Firebase just for the sake of argument, everything's working, except yep. we run into a problem. What kind of problems could we run into once our application is deployed, once we've developed everything and it's still not working as expected? Yeah, so I think a lot of times, usually there's a problem with either your manifest file or your service worker. I mean, the HTTPS connection is straightforward because, you know, once you deploy it to Firebase, like I say, you get HTTPS uh, certificates by default. So I think usually it's just like the mani- uh, the service worker not starting because, you know, you've maybe made a mistake with uh, how it's initialized or some of the code uh, for your caching strategies and things like that. So it just bugs out. So I think a lot of times what you need to do is just go into the inspector, the Chrome inspector. So like if you go in there, there's Lighthouse, the um, the tool to diagnose the uh, app. And what you could do is you could just run a diagnostic and it will even, it has a section about PWAs, shows you all the requirements, shows you good practice and things like that as well. So it will it will show you, oh, okay, you know, your manifest files is not configured correctly or, you know, manifest file not detected or your service worker is not found or your service worker has shut down. Yeah, it's it's actually quite a useful tool actually to see what's going on. Yeah, I when I was building the PWA I've mentioned, I was very reliant on the Lighthouse score for telling me what was still missing. Because I, I put in the plugin as it told me to and was like, I don't think I'm going to be a PWA today. I'm not going to install Sorry, what's going on? So I had to go into that tab and it gave me a few things to work on. One of them was having icons of different sizes, actually. Yep. So that was that was interesting. I hadn't expected that to be a problem. Right. Yeah. So I think icons, I don't think it's a deal breaker because like I think by default, like we use the view PWA or Nux PWA packages. They tend to generate like uh, the full icon set, I think by, by uh, like automatically. If you just give them one uh, image, it will generate the rest. So I, I think usually that's not a deal breaker. Normally it's uh, yeah the manifest file not being present or the service worker not initializing correctly. And um, yeah, you'll start seeing that you can't install the app and you start feeling like, oh man, did I, go, did I do something wrong? So yeah, it's, it's really, uh, the inspector is, is your best friend, to be honest. Absolutely. Well, cool. Where would we go? Let's say we've gotten to this point, we've deployed our PWA, it's installed on our phone, everything's working as expected. Where could we go to learn more if we want to dig deeper into what's possible with the PWA? Yeah, so I think with PWAs, the best resource, I think, or the gold standard resource is uh, the Google Web Developers documentation. I think it contains a lot of, how do you say, uh, information about the various things you could do with a PWA, like caching strategies, uh, workbox. So workbox is is the service worker. Usually what you do is that when you when you start your service worker file, you would import workbox from Google Scripts. And so if you want to delve into a lot more detail into workbox, the Google Web Developer page basically contains all the documentation because it comes from Google. Yeah, I, I think that would be a very good source. The documentation for the Vue PWA and Nux PWA are quite good. 
and they contain a lot of information of how you can configure the plugins using the uh, view config or Nux config files. Let me think, what else? I think other than that, it's really a lot of Googling on Stack Overflow, on Medium articles and things like that, because that's usually where I get most of my information as well from a lot of other de- developers. Yeah, I think one of my favorite sources of knowledge in general, not just about PWAs, is somebody on Twitter going, hey, did you know you could do this? This is so cool. <laughs> and then people talking about, it, oh, it's actually supported on all the browsers now. Yay, let's do it. Like the, the latest has been some CSS things that it, that have finally deployed in Safari and we can finally start using them. Ah. So I really enjoy that that source as well because not only do you learn about it, but you also see people getting excited about it too. Exactly, yeah. It's always just fun looking at the community and seeing everyone get excited about new features and new things you could do using yeah. Vue. Awesome. Well, thank you, John, so much for going over this with us. This has been great. No worries. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. Hey, folks, if you love this podcast and would like to support the show, or if you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages, then you're in luck. We're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after Christmas 2020 without the ads. Signing up will help us pay for editing and production, and you can go sign up at devchat.tv slash premium. At this point, we will move on to picks before we before we end the show. Picks are the part where we share things we like with the community. Uh, it doesn't have to be something programming related. And John, yeah. you've talked more today, so I'm going to go first and give you a quick break. Sure. My pick today is a plugin that I found for Vite. It's actually an awesome Vite. You may have seen it before. Uh, it's just called Vite Plugin SSR. Its tagline is that it is something like Next.js or Nuxt, but as a plugin for Vite in a do one thing and do it well style. So what it does, if you use their their scaffolding for a Vite application, is it creates a server, it creates the client, and then in your client folder, let's say you've got your index page. In, in this case, I think it's index.page.view. And that, that's just a standard page. It renders to your template as you would expect from something like Nuxt. But there's also a file you can put right next to it that's called index. So it's something like index.page.server.view ts or js uh, depending on if you're using typescript and that can perform all of your server side functionality and it will run every single time that route is called so if you if you want to make an api request if you need to fetch some data from the database if you need to do some sort of authentication all of that can be done in the server file and that's passed and any data you return from there is passed in as props into your page so you get the same benefit of something like uh, next.js with get server side props it's it's just broken up into two different files and this is one thing that I've really wanted from Nuxt, where what, because in Nuxt, once you load it, the application, it does the initial rendering on the server, but every other page is called on the client. So you can't yep. do database queries inside of the component. So with this plugin, it gives you that opportunity to always make a server-side call before rendering a page, which I just uh-huh. think is incredible if you're needing to fetch data from a database just to cut down on the number of API requests. So I'll make sure there's a link in the show notes for that. That is Vite Plugin SSR. You can find it on the awesome Vite page as well. So that is Very my cool. pick for the day. Awesome. Uh, John, do you do you have a pick for us? Sure, yeah. I've been using something that I find quite interesting. It's, uh, it's quite a simple plugin, but it's really helped me quite a lot in uh, making my site look quite cool. It's called View Grid Layout. So it's, uh, it's a package that basically allows you to uh, create grids, be able to resize and uh, shrink boxes and be able to move them around as well on a, on a grid layout. 
So it's sort of like a, a drag and drop kind of interface. You know, you're able to move things around on your website. The reason why I think that's super cool is because it's it's re- it really works right out of the box. And how I've used it is, for example, I've been trying to build my own simple BI dashboard tool kind of thing. So like, you know, having graphs and charts and things like that that can easily move around on my web page. So I always say if I wanted a chart here, if I wanted a chart there, I, I embed a, a chart into view grid layout and I'm able to easily resize my charts, move it around and things like that. So I think that would be my pick because I think uh, it's really powerful. It makes your site look really cool. And yeah, you can add so much interactivity that will wow, you know, I'm sure your users and things like that. So shout out to the team that's doing view grid layout. I think it's a really cool module. That is really cool. Thank you so much for sharing that. My pleasure. Uh, so before we end, John, is there somewhere that people can reach out to you if they want to continue this conversation or uh, just follow what you're doing online? Yeah, sure. I think the best way to reach me is probably via LinkedIn because like, yeah, I'm quite active on LinkedIn. So uh, you can head over to my uh, LinkedIn profile. Uh, if you search John Lim, you should be able to find me. I'm based in Malaysia. Yeah, and uh, my uh, picture is uh, there. So I think uh, you should you should be able to find me there and connect with me. Excellent. And we will also make sure that links go in the show notes for your articles on View Mastery. So yep. people can continue to read and follow what you're doing there as well. Yeah, that'd be really cool. I've got uh, a new article published uh, recently. So uh, do check that out. It's about, uh, yeah, I think the uh, most popular packages on Vue. I'm excited to see what's there. Well, great. All right. Thank you so much, John. I hope you all enjoyed this episode as well. Uh, if you'd like to learn more about us, you can find us on viewsonview.com or at devchat.tv. You can also find us on Twitter at viewsonview. You can find myself on Twitter at Lindsay K. Wardell. Hope you enjoyed this episode. And we'll see you again next time. See you guys. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.